Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I'd like to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and today I'm delighted to welcome as my guest, Dr. Linda Van Dillen, who's professor in the program in physical therapy, as well as in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery uh, in the School of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. Linda, welcome. Thanks very much. I'm excited about the invitation. Linda and I are going to be talking about an article she and her colleagues recently published in PTJ. It's entitled, Immediate Effects of a Single Session of Motor Skill Training on the Lumbar Movement Pattern During a Functional Activity in people with low back pain. I will give a little summary of the study, and then we'll talk about some of my questions, Linda, okay? Sounds good. The objective of this study was to examine the lumbar movement patterns before and after motor skill training. The investigators also looked at the effects on pain, as well as characteristics that were associated with the ability to modify one's movement patterns. The sample included 26 people with chronic low back pain who received motor skill training, as well as 16 people with healthy backs, and the design was a repeated measures. The intervention consisted of 20 minutes of motor skill training aimed at decreasing early phase lumbar excursion during the performance of a pick-up-an-object functional activity. With respect to the results of the study, people with low back pain displayed greater early phase lumbar excursion before training as compared to people with healthy backs. But after training, the low back pain group showed a decrease in the amount of early phase lumbar excursion. 91% of the subjects with low back pain reported that their pain decreased following the training. The longer the duration of their low back pain and the more early phase lumbar excursion they had before training, the greater the change and early phase lumbar excursion following training. Let me start by saying, Linda, I really enjoyed the article. I thought it was really interesting, and I want to thank you and your colleagues for publishing it in PTJ. We were happy that it got published in PTJ, to be honest. It was great. Let me start by uh, asking if you would discuss briefly the theoretical rationale behind your thesis that an altered movement pattern of early lumbar motion would contribute to the development and course of low back pain? The theoretical model that underlies this study is uh, the kinesiopathologic model. And this, this model describes processes that are proposed to um, contribute to the development and course of back pain conditions. And in this model, basically, the proposal is that people develop back pain because of repetitive movements that, of the lumbar region that they perform in the same direction during daily activities. So the idea is that Similar to what, or not dissimilar to what you get with therapeutic exercise, uh, the way you perform your daily activities and the repetitive nature of that induces changes in the musculoskeletal system, the neural system, that eventually those changes become impairments. And the impairment in low back pain that we looked at was this idea that the lumbar spine moves uh, relatively more flexible or it becomes relatively more flexible than other joints that can contribute to movement and that the impairment then would be to change that. And in this study, the way we indexed that flexibility of the lumbar spine was by how much it moved in that first half of the movement of picking up the object. 
And the idea is that this repetitive altered lumbar movement pattern where the spine moves very readily in the same direction then contributes to altered loading of the spinal joints, which over time can contribute to accumulation of spinal tissue stress, which we know can contribute to irritation, uh, and eventually symptoms and limitations in function. And what's really interesting in this model, I think, is that it's proposed that until those activities that are contributing to the altered movement pattern are modified or changed or improved, the back pain symptoms that the person complains of will recur or persist. So that's why we looked at a learning strategy to change these patterns that are used repetitively. I was really interested in that theoretical rationale. My next question is whether you were surprised that when you looked at these subjects with low back pain, you did not see differences in comparison to those with the healthy backs in the initial lumbar lordosis angle in standing or in hamstring extensibility. And the people with lumbar um, low back pain displayed similar amounts of maximal lumbar and hip excursion when they did that functional activity test. Did you anticipate that, or was that a surprise to you and your colleagues? We really weren't surprised. So if you look at the back pain data that's out there, there's some that suggest that people with chronic back pain have an increased lordosis or their hamstrings are shorter compared to people who are back healthy. But that effect really isn't that consistent. In fact, we've seen in other studies where we've looked at people with chronic back pain during uh, when they perform clinical tests or functional activity tests, and we have not consistently seen differences between people who are back healthy to people with chronic low back pain. In particular, we actually uh, looked at this um, same measure of lordosis in a group of people with chronic back pain and back healthy controls um, a number of years ago and didn't see differences until we subgrouped the back pain group. Once you had people in low back pain subgroups, they were different than the controls. But when you just compare chronic low back pain to back healthy controls, it didn't surprise me at all that we didn't see differences. The task, too, if you think about the task, most of the differences that have been seen in, for example, maximal lumbar and hip excursion between people who are have healthy backs versus people with chronic low back pain, most of those differences have been seen in tests where they either measure excursion or end range of motion during forward bending. So the person's moving to end range motion. And in, in some instances, there's a difference between people with back pain versus the back healthy uh, controls. But the lack of difference we saw with our task was not really surprising because the task isn't going to end range. It's a, performed in a mid-range. And so in other studies that have looked at these functional activities that are mid-range sometimes have shown differences but not consistently. So we think the difference is probably because most of the reports of differences between back pain and back healthy controls is because you're looking at end range of motion tasks. It was interesting that your sample had minimal to moderately impaired uh, backs, and you excluded those with uh, more severe impairments. What was your thinking about that? We actually didn't intentionally exclude people based on what we used, which was the modified Oswestry uh, Disability Questionnaire Score. Part of it was that we recruited mostly from the community. Uh, we do that because most people with chronic back pain tend to stop seeking care for their condition, and the other 
thing. We are interested in looking at people who are not in acute flare-up at the time of testing. We really want to see how they're moving. So we tend to get people with minimal to moderate limitations. Given that, we had a good spread of scores so we could look at the effects that we were interested in. Currently, though, we are testing this motor skill training in people with chronic back pain who are more involved. So can we actually replicate the effects we saw in this repeated measure study in a, a longitudinal design? And in that study, people had a mean score of about 33 on the Oswestry, ranges from 20 to 60, and have an average score on the numeric rating scale for their pain of about five. And so we are testing the idea of whether or not you can see these effects in people who are more involved. You know, I was struck that you chose a dose of one 20-minute session of motor skill training. Why that dose? Well, we did that because we actually used this data for pilot data. We had conducted a prior study. It was a randomized clinical trial. And in that study, people got therapeutic exercise and practice in training how to change their performance of daily activities or functional activities. And in that study, we found that people with chronic low back pain adhered more to changing how they performed their functional activities than they did the traditional therapeutic exercise. So out of the two components, they, they adhered more to changing their everyday activity performance. And that adherence was associated with change in outcome. So what we wanted to know was how much of that effect was coming from changing how people move during daily activities versus the traditional therapeutic exercise. And the original study, we hadn't measured those changes in how people performed in their functional activities. We just had Oswestry scores. So we didn't know if the change in the outcome was really associated with change in performance of the activities. So this study allowed us to see if we really were changing the movement pattern during performance of the functional activity with the training, how quickly could the changes occur, and then did we get an immediate change in an important outcome, which was pain. So it really provided us preliminary data to move on to a larger study. I was surprised that you did get an effect with just one uh, session. And in, in your article, you note that following the skill training, 91%, 10 out of 11 of the subjects no longer reported an increase in pain during the pickup and object test. Did anything jump out at you about the one person who did report an increase in pain? It was interesting that only one stood out. I wondered if there was anything about that person. We examined a number of variables to see if this person looked different than the other 10. And, you know, we looked at demographics, back pain history variables, their back pain presentation in terms of level pain, fear avoidance. We looked at those extensibility and alignment measures that were documented, health status, and then we also looked at the movement excursion variable. And the only difference, if you just look at that one person compared to the other 10, is that this person who didn't um, have an improvement in their symptoms post-test did not change his lumbar movement pattern after training to the same degree as the other 10 participants. So it looks like he couldn't learn in that short of a session, and it's associated with the inability to change his symptoms as well. That bodes well for your thesis in your ongoing work in this area. Yeah, it was really very, very interesting. When the subjects with low back pain were compared to those without on the pickup object test before any training. When you looked at the early phase lumbar excursion, those with healthy backs had a mean of just over 11 degrees, and those with back pain had 7 degrees? Correct. Is that 
a clinically significant difference? Uh, I'm not versed enough in this area to know. Well, I don't think anybody's really looked at early lumbar excursion first and then the clinical significance of that. So we, in this study, did not do any formal testing to examine whether that amount of change was clinically meaningful using some kind of methodology like a global rating scale of change. And that would be really important to test. I think there's a couple of details, though, that might suggest that the change is relevant and perhaps meaningful. The movement pattern after training in people with back pain was the same as the back-healthy participants. So yeah. they look now like back-healthy people. We know that the change that we got is beyond the standard error of the measure, uh, so it's yeah. not noise, which was, which, which was encouraging. But I think the most important thing really was the idea that the change in motion of about four, four and a half degrees with training was associated with an immediate improvement in symptoms. So that really lends some clinical, perhaps clinical relevance to the effect we obtained. Because you might think that, you know, after practicing something in lots of different ways, but basically the same thing, that people who have back pain might be worse after practice when, in fact, they were better. So that might lend some support that it's important. And it certainly is encouraging for future work in this area. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really exciting, actually. Now, I have a question about your measure of pain. You didn't use a numeric pain rating scale, and therefore the way you measured it, you could only look at direction of change and not magnitude. What's the rationale for that? In retrospect, we wish we would have used a numeric rating scale, but we've been conducting these kinds of studies for a really long time, particularly in people with chronic low back pain. And our experience was when you, you ask for multiple ratings of pain on a numeric rating scale or have it marked on a visual analog scale, we found that people have difficulty making those small discriminations. You keep asking them over and over within a test or across tests, and they also don't like to be asked multiple times. So we have deferred to what's typically done clinically, which is you ask the person, are your symptoms worse, better, or the same, compared to, in this example, it was in in standing. And so we only have, you know, did it change and in what direction? So it's more clinical, but we would have learned a lot more about going back to your question about clinical importance, how much did it change? I think even seeing what we saw, though, the idea that the majority of people reported a decrease in symptoms and is a good indicator. Particularly with just one session, one session that yeah. really surprised me. Yes. One session, we were, we were surprised as well. And contrary to what you had thought going in, those who had more impairment were more able to change their lumbar movement patterns. Is that correct? That's correct. And why do you think that occurred? Well, I mean, in retrospect, as in most studies, if, if you have the larger your impairment, you know, the more room you have to change that impairment. Clinically, though, intuitively, you would think, well, these people also were more impaired in terms of not just movement, but they had higher oswestries, more fear of movement, a longer duration of back pain. Just clinically, you'd think, oh, this one's going to take longer. And, right. But it, that wasn't That's what the I would have thought, too. Yeah, that, that wasn't the case. And the fact that – and I think part of it is we were delivering the treatment in a way that engaged the person. It was relevant to the person. And we gave them enough cues to figure out on their own what the problem was, and then we forced them to continue to figure that out. And so maybe that engagement made it possible for people who are quite impaired to be able to make a change relatively quickly. 
again, this is just within a session, but it still is encouraging that using those kinds of conditions in people who show a movement impairment that appears to be quite relevant to their back pain problem, that, that it can be improved in a really quick period of time and improves the symptoms, at least within a session. Well, I, too, think it's very encouraging, and I'm sure you'll be following up on it. Uh, in your future work, do you intend to compare motor skill training during functional activities against other maybe more traditional forms of physical therapy treatment? Yes. In fact, we have just completed a randomized clinical trial where we are examining motor skill training versus strength and flexibility in people with chronic back pain. Again, they're not acutely flared up. And again, the, the data that are reported in PTJ provided the pilot data. So again, we're looking to see whether identifying and then targeting a person's specific altered lumbar movement pattern and then providing treatment that facilitates them learning to perform their functional activities differently to resolve that movement impairment, um, whether or not that's going to result in short and long-term outcomes that are better than an evidence-based treatment for back pain. And we have just presented the preliminary findings at a meeting in May uh, and in August. Well, I look forward to, to reading that work. And again, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk about your, your most interesting study. Congratulations, and I look forward to, to seeing future work. Thanks very much.